DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University, and he has dedicated many years to an extensive ministry of retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching about the spiritual life. Father Gallagher is the author of seven books published by the Crossroad Publishing Company on the spiritual teaching of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is featured on the EWTN series, Living the Discerning Life, the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The Thirteenth Rule. Likewise, he conducts himself as a false lover in wishing to remain secret and not be revealed. For a dissolute man who, speaking with evil intention, makes dishonorable advances to a daughter of a good father, or to a wife of a good husband, wishes his words and persuasions to be secret, and the contrary displeases him very much, when the daughter reveals to her father or the wife to her husband his false words and depraved intention, because he easily perceives that he will not be able to succeed with the undertaking begun. In the same way, when the enemy of human nature brings his wiles and persuasions to the just soul, he wishes and desires that they be received and kept in secret. But when one reveals them to one's good confessor or to another spiritual person who knows his deceits and malicious designs, it weighs on him very much, because he perceives that he will not be able to succeed with the malicious undertaking he has begun, since his manifest deceits have been revealed. Rule 13, not an unlucky rule by any stretch of the imagination. Together with Rule 5, one of the most important and blessed of the rules. Breaking the spiritual silence. Oh, mm. that's the toughest one, I think, sometimes, is how do I know? What, what am I hearing? Am I hearing anything at all? Well, if in the preceding rule, what Ignatius wanted us to see is that the enemy is essentially weak and that his only strength consists in our being weak and giving way, and so that if the importance of standing firm right in the very beginning. What Ignatius wants us to see in this wonderful Rule 13 is that the enemy will try to get us not to speak with a competent spiritual person about the burdens in our spiritual life, the temptations, the discouraging thoughts and suggestions, the things that weigh us down, his desire that we keep them secret, and not speak about them. And in this rule, as in Rule 12, Ignatius begins with a metaphor, kind of a parable, and then pulls the lesson out of it. And, and the parable is pretty evident here. Here is a dishonest man who simply wants to seduce rather than genuinely love an upright woman mm -hmm. and begins his seductive game and makes his dishonorable advances, Ignatius says, and begins making his suggestions to her. He very much desires, Ignatius says, that she not say anything. If this is a younger woman to her father, a married woman to her husband, because he knows that the moment she says something to her husband or respectively to her father, the moment she says that the game is up. But as long as she doesn't say anything, the game can go on and hopefully he can move toward his uh, dishonest goal. So that's the figure, that's the parable, and now the application. And I'll, I'll just read this as Ignatius actually says it in his rule. 
In the same way, he says, when the enemy of human nature brings his wiles and persuasions to the just soul, his troubling suggestions, his temptations, the things that weigh on us, the things that somehow seem to stand in the way of the freedom I wish I could feel just to receive God's love and love the Lord. When he brings his wiles and persuasions to the just souls, he wishes and desires that they be received and kept in secret. That's the heart of the enemy's tactic. And this is the response. But when one reveals them to one's good confessor or to another spiritual person who knows his deceits and malicious designs, it weighs on him very much because he perceives that he will not be able to succeed with the malicious undertaking he has begun since his manifest deceits have been revealed. Now here, in, as we talk about these rules, we reach one of these points where I need to speak with a great sensitivity. Because this Rule 13 can touch very deep places in our hearts. Here is a person who would feel so free to love God and to receive God's love were it not for this thing which happened maybe years ago, maybe decades ago in my life, and of which I've never spoken with anyone. Or were it not for this ongoing aspect of my life, which no one knows, which I've never put into words to anyone, but which I know is there and which always comes to my heart and my consciousness when, let's say, I read a scripture that speaks about God's love for me, or hear a homily where someone speaks of how the Lord invites us to come close to him, but this stands in the way. And years ago, when I used to do uh, parish missions, before I got more into this work with discernment, it was a beautiful thing. You would come into a parish. You're only going to be there for a few days. Uh, you were safe. People would hear you speak and a certain confidence would develop. And oftentimes there would be settings in which people would finally for the first time put into words spiritual burdens which sometimes they would have carried for decades in their lives. It was beautiful to see it happen. To keep using our same phrase, you would see captives being set free. Probably the happiest thing actually in my work as a priest and retreat work and spiritual direction and just working with people has been uh, at times to be that safe space in which people have been able to put into words the things that weigh upon their hearts in their relationship with God. And again, you see that miracle of a heart set free. That's why I call this chapter Breaking the Spiritual Silence, which leads to such freedom. As we said earlier in these conversations, right from the beginning, the scripture says it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone in the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Now, to whom would one speak about these things? Here, if I may say this very reverently, here is a person who is burdened. I, I sense this burden, this trouble, this painful doubt, this one aspect or event of my life which makes me wonder whether God can really love me. With whom would I speak about this? Ignatius very succinctly but very clearly describes two profiles of a person with whom one might speak. So he says, to repeat again the rule, but when one reveals them, the enemy's troubling suggestions, burdens, to one's good confessor or to another spiritual person who knows his deceits and malicious designs. So the first profile is a confessor. 
And Ignatius qualifies with two adjectives the confessor of whom he speaks. This is a good confessor. And as he immediately says in the words that follow in the rule, by good, what Ignatius has in mind is not even simply a holy confessor, but one who knows the enemy's deceits and malicious designs, knows the enemy's tactics, the kinds of things that Ignatius is describing in these rules. So that when I go to speak with this confessor, this good confessor will understand the enemy's tactics and will help me to understand them so that I can be set free. And not only a a good confessor in this sense, but Ignatius says one's good confessor. That is, this is a priest whom I know to be this kind of confessor because I have been to him already a sufficient number of times, which may not have to be that many, but enough so that I, I have some personal connection with this priest as a confessor, and I know that he is a good confessor. He is this kind of, of priest. The second profile that Ignatius describes is, is broader, and it could be a person in any vocation. Ignatius simply says another spiritual person, and the key word is spiritual, mm-hmm. which Ignatius immediately explains as a person who knows the enemy's deceits and malicious designs. So this could be a person in any uh, state of life or vocation, but the key is that this is a person who is knowledgeable in these tactics, the enemy, the kind of teaching, again, that Ignatius is giving in these rules, so that when I speak with this person, this person will, it will be a wise, competent, spiritual person who will really be able to help me with what I'm sharing. I want to look at a moment in the life of St. Therese of the Child Jesus, where we'll see some of this tactic and we'll watch a saint respond to it. Mm-hmm. This is the experience that happened to St. Therese the evening before she professed her vows as a Carmelite sister. So it's a key moment. Uh, She has been, actually, in the history of the church, there probably seldom has been a vocation about which the person has been so clear from such a young age. When Therese, who has already for years been aware that she feels called by God to be a Carmelite sister, when she reaches the age of 15, she asks her father's permission, which he gives. She asks, she's too young, with regard to the age requirement, so she goes to see the bishop to ask his dispensation from the age requirement. And the bishop very wisely refers her to the priest in the diocese who has the canonical responsibility for the Carmelite monastery. And he quite reasonably has his doubts because of her age, because a few of her sisters are already there, and he's just not quite sure about whether it's opportune for Therese to enter at this age. Well, then Therese goes on that pilgrimage down to Rome for the Jubilee year, and breaking all protocol, falls on her knees in front of the Holy Father in public, Pope Leo XIII, and asks his permission to be able to enter the Carmel, and he very appropriately refers her to her bishop. Wonderful story. (laughs) (laughs) But that was actually the decisive moment, because one of the the other priests who was on that pilgrimage witnessed this um, moment when this young girl so earnestly pleaded before the Holy Father himself, to be, wanted to know more about the story, spoke with Therese's father, who was also on the pilgrimage, learned about her situation, and when they returned back to France, back home, set things in motion so that she was able to enter the Carmel. Now, Therese has been in the Carmel for several years as a postulant, as a novice. She has never had ever a single doubt about her vocation to the Carmelite life. And now it's the evening before the vow ceremony, and Therese is in retreat, and so she's in silence, a silence which will only be broken with the ceremony the next morning. The other sisters are seated in what's called the choir area, the area where they come together to pray the divine office together, to pray the psalms together. They have just finished. They spend maybe 
10 minutes in silent prayer together before each goes off to her room for the silence of the night until the next morning when they'll gather again. Therese is making the way of the cross, and as she does so, a doubt comes to her now about whether she really is called to Carmel. Let's just begin to read her text. And she says, The beautiful day of my wedding, by which she means her espousal to the Lord Jesus as a Carmelite monastery, the day of her final vows, finally arrived. It was without a single cloud. However, the preceding evening a storm arose within my soul, the like of which I had never seen before. Not a single doubt concerning my vocation had ever entered my mind until then, and it evidently was necessary that I experience this trial, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this takes us back to Rule 9, where Ignatius answers the question, why does a God who loves us allow us to go through the darkness of spiritual desolation? Couldn't God have spared Therese this storm in her soul the evening before her vows? And she recognizes, as Ignatius explains in that ninth rule, that sometimes when we're through no fault of our own or negligence on our part, God will allow us to undergo spiritual desolation as a trial because of the growth, the learning we said that can come through it. And Therese instinctively with the sharp intuition of the saints recognizes this evidently was necessary that i experienced this trial in the evening while making the way of the cross after matins which was the final part of the psalms that the sisters would sing together my vocation appeared to me as a dream a chimera i found life in carmel to be very beautiful but the devil inspired me with the assurance so she names causes clearly Mm -hmm. but if you'll notice her word inspired me with the assurance which is a strong word that it wasn't for me, and that I was misleading my superiors by advancing on this way to which I wasn't called. And she says, The darkness was so great that I could see and understand one thing only. I didn't have a vocation. Mm -hmm. Ah, how can I possibly describe the anguish in my soul? I think we can at least glimpse a bit of that anguish. Here is a woman who for years has directed everything in her life with great energy and courage toward the Carmelite vocation, has never had a single doubt, is now on the verge of her vows. And now she understands that she's been wrong all along. Mm -hmm. She's been mistaken and misleading her superiors. The ceremony is prepared, everyone is coming, and now she knows in the silence, as she's praying the way of the cross alone this evening, that she's been wrong all along. How can I possibly describe, she says, the anguish in my soul? It appeared to me, she writes, And this is an absurdity which shows it was a temptation from the devil. So she names things really clearly. It appeared to me that if I were to tell my novice mistress, who was the person who had the responsibility for her preparation for her profession of vows, and who was very much a wise, competent, spiritual person, it appeared to me that if I were to tell, can you hear Rule 13 now in this? Mm -hmm. That if I were to tell my novice mistress about these fears, she would prevent me from pronouncing my vows. And still, I wanted to do God's will and return to the world rather than remain in Carmel and do my own. Everything has gotten flipped around now. Now, here's the imagined scenario that Therese finds running through her mind and her heart. She sees herself going into that choir area, asking the novice mistress to come out and speak with her. The novice mistress very kindly agrees. They sit down together. Therese shares with her novice mistress her newfound clarity about her vocation, that she's been wrong all along, that God is not calling her to the Carmel. Sees the novice mistress very gently, not agreement, and say to her, in essence, if that's the case, 
we'll let people know we'll call off the vow ceremony tomorrow and we'll set things in motion so that you can return home. So the imagined scenario, as Therese imagines herself speaking with the novice mistress, is that if you speak, it will be the death of everything you have ever hoped for vocationally. It will be unbearably painful. It will be the end of anything you've ever hoped for. Now let's watch what this wonderful woman of God does. Mm -hmm. I made the mistress come out of the choir, and I suspect probably women more than men, and maybe above all contemplatives will understand the courage of this, because here is the youngest member of the community, in full sight of the gathered community, in obvious distress, coming in and asking the novice mistress to come out and speak with her. And they all know her final vows are the next morning. It's not going to be hard for them to guess something of what may be at work in the distress that she's experiencing. Therese is a kind of woman of spiritual steel. There's a kind of uh, strength and courage about her, which is just a beautiful thing. I made the mistress come out of the choir and filled with confusion. This is not easy for her. I told her the state of my soul. Fortunately, she saw things much clearer than I did, and she completely reassured me. The act of humility I had just performed put the devil to flight, since he had perhaps thought that I would not dare admit my temptation. And you can hear the heart of Rule 13 right there, since he had perhaps thought I would not dare admit my temptation. And then this beautiful sentence, My doubts left me completely as soon as I finish speaking, which is exactly where Ignatius wants to lead us in Rule 13. Let's compare two things. Here's the imagined scenario. I ask the novice mistress to speak. I tell her my newfound clarity. She agrees. It's the death of everything I've ever hoped for. It will be unbearably painful. Lightly behind that imagined scenario is, you can't talk about this. Don't say anything. And here is the real scenario. Therese asks the novice mistress to speak. They sit down. Therese shares her newfound clarity about her vocation, her doubts, the struggle. The novice mistress is a wise, competent, spiritual person. She's probably seen this many times, some struggle on the evening before definitive commitments. She also knows Therese very deeply from the work they've been doing together, and so she can easily and completely reassure Therese. No, Therese, this, there, there's nothing to worry about in this. My doubts left me completely as soon as I finished speaking. But Therese doesn't even stop there in her determination to do exactly the opposite of what the enemy would want her to do, and that is to keep silence and not speak. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, to make my act of humility even more perfect... I still wish to confide my strange temptation to our mother prioress, the sister in charge of the entire monastery, who simply laughed at me, which is perfect. Basically, Therese, we know you. There's just nothing here to worry about at all. And then Therese says, In the morning of September 8th, the next morning, I felt as though I were flooded with a river of peace, spiritual consolation, and it was in this peace, which surpasses all understanding, that I pronounced my holy vows. Now here I'd like to ask a question. What if that evening, Therese had not spoken to her novice mistress. Would she have professed her vows in a river of peace the next morning? And what might she have carried for years in her life? We all know that every genuine vocation 
gets tested pretty strongly at various points in life, whether it's marriage or priesthood or religious life. And in those times, there would be the voice. You knew that you weren't called and you didn't say anything. And the door to so much suffering and struggle and doubt is shut. Because Therese no sooner recognizes the enemy's burdening thoughts then she goes directly to the competent spiritual person, speaks openly about it, and it's over. Let's ask a second question. What if that evening Therese had spoken, but not to her novice mistress, maybe to one of her fellow novices no further along than she in religious life? Would she have professed her vows in a river of peace and all the rest that we've just put into words? Therese, it, it, this is perfect. This is Rule 13 at its best. There is a burden in my heart, in my spiritual life, I find the wise, competent, spiritual person. I speak openly with that person, and the burden is lifted, and I go on in peace, breaking the spiritual silence, as I call this in the book. Now, let me try to put into words the ways in which we may experience this tactic of the enemy who will try to get us not to speak about what's weighing on us in our spiritual lives. Let's say, here's a priest, for example, who I know is that wise, competent, spiritual person with whom I know I could speak and would be able to understand and help me. But then the thought will come to me, but he is so busy. Or, there is that wise, competent person with whom I could speak, but I'm too busy. I don't have time. If it's a week, let me stretch a point and say several weeks even. I stretch it reluctantly, but I'll do it for the sake of uh, the point I want to make. Maybe I'll buy that. But if a month, six months, a year goes by and I still am too busy, then I think we need to start thinking in terms of Rule 13. There is someone who does not want me to speak so that the spiritual burden can go on. Mm -hmm. Here is the competent spiritual person with whom I could speak, but if I do, he'll laugh at me. He or she will never be able to understand me. He or she will be very kind to me when I speak about this, but somewhere I'll, I'll know that this person is never going to respect me quite in the same way. Or this person will listen very kindly and then in some form will say to me, if that's true, if that's a part of your life and who you are, then we can no longer continue to speak. We'll have to end um, the help I've been giving you spiritually. Or why should I bother even trying to speak about this? Nobody can change this. There's nothing anyone can say that will ever make any difference. Now, when that kind of thinking is there, there's probably some spiritual desolation going on. You can feel the heaviness of heart in that. It's almost, as you're describing it, you can visualize or image, again, that somebody on your shoulder just saying, keep that hidden. Don't say anything. That's too much revealing. They don't want to hear that. I mean, it's almost as literal as that, isn't it? Very much. And there is Therese's beautiful sentence, my doubts left me completely as soon as I finished speaking. That's what the enemy doesn't want, and that's where the Lord wants to lead us, and Ignatius has the Lord's servant in this. I'll read a sentence, or just maybe two sentences, from something that Pope Benedict said. This is on September 16, 2009, in his Wednesday general audience talk. To advance toward the Lord which is what I'm sure all of us listening want, to advance toward the Lord, to grow, not to stay in the same place place spiritually, but to grow. To advance toward the Lord, we always have need of a guide, of some form of dialogue. And strikingly, he says, we cannot do it just with our own reflections. 
And finding this guide, he says, is part of the ecclesial nature of our faith. That is, the nature of our faith, which brings us together as a church. We're not meant to be alone in our spiritual lives. Well, at this point, I probably should address a question which is underlying, and I'm probably in people's minds and hearts at this point, how do I find that wise, competent, spiritual person? Uh-huh. The Church has an age-old tradition of spiritual direction, and where we are able to find a wise, competent, spiritual director, and it's possible to meet in some kind of continuing fashion with a person like that, obviously that's a wonderful, a wonderful option. All right, well then, the question which immediately follows, I would imagine, is what if I can't find that kind of person? I would say don't lose heart in the search, but many other things are possible even as we continue that search. Confession is is very valuable along these lines. I think for many of us, if we are able to go to confession to a confessor who is willing as he hears our confessions maybe even if it's just two or three sentences, to say just a little something in terms of spiritual guidance and spiritual direction. You might want to try this or consider that or take this step. That can be enormously helpful. So if we can find through the sacrament of confession a space in which even very brief spiritual counsel is available to us, that can be enormously helpful. I think if we want to live the discerning life, it's wise to to properly value the contribution that the sacrament of reconciliation or confession can make. Retreats. What if I went to a retreat every year, a weekend retreat, or once or twice a year, a day of retreat or a weekend, There and during that retreat, asked to speak with the retreat guide, the retreat director. There's a big difference between a spiritual life in which I never speak with anyone and a spiritual life in which once or twice a year I'm speaking to someone. Retreats can also be enormously helpful in living Rule 13, breaking the Mm -hmm. spiritual silence. Now, on a different level, on a different level, and we're no longer speaking here of that formerly wise, competent spiritual person who may be a spiritual director or spiritual guide, there are spiritual friends. There may be groups in a parish that I can join that are dedicated to spiritual formation or prayer in various ways. Husbands and wives. It's what the church calls conjugal spirituality, where that unique help that husbands and wives can be for each other in accompanying each other in that marvelous vocation of marriage. I know sometimes there can be difficulties in that. Where that is possible, it can be a wonderful help. Families can get together and pray, or mixtures of these various things. Let me conclude with this. I I remember hearing a few years ago of a priest who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea and lived many, many miles away from the nearest settlement. There were no roads. The mission was accessible only by sea. This was before the age of computers. What this priest would do is was to get a tape recorder and describe his spiritual experience onto an audio cassette mail it to a different country where his spiritual guide was who would listen to it, speak his comments onto the audio cassette and mail it back. When I heard that, I said, there is not one of us who cannot find some way to be accompanied in the spirit, in the spiritual life. And there is enormous blessing in that. If the only thing that could stop us is a listening to a voice that says, you can't find someone. There is nobody. My doubts left me completely as soon as I finished speaking. It's available to us all. Thank you, Father Gallagher. It's my privilege.
You've been listening to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our mission. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher.